This is episode one of season one of Strength Agenda Radio. Now give me two claps and a Ric Flair. This is Strength Agenda Radio, the podcast where the strong go to get smarter. Each episode features some of the most interesting athletes and coaches in the strength world, sharing their favorite stories, expertise, biggest mistakes, and training tips. And now, here's your host, Tom Soroka. Have you ever heard the phrase, if you aren't cheating, you aren't trying? It's been used, I've heard it in football, I've heard it in track and field, I've heard it in all sorts of different sports, and it's a phrase commonly used, most of the time I laugh at it, but ever since I started competing in the sport of weightlifting, and now coaching athletes in the sport of weightlifting, it's a phrase that I don't find as funny anymore. Um, Americans for the longest time, in turn, when asked why we're not more competitive on the national stage or the international stage, excuse me, um, why we're not more competitive on the international stage, have always pointed to the Europeans are on drugs. That's why we can't compete. And those hardcore purist type athletes that either uh, are really good at lifting for YouTube or they, you know, put up big numbers in the training halls, but they don't compete well or vice, whatever it is. There's a lot of athletes out there that refer to those people that use as as an excuse that say that they're, you're a big wuss. You're never going to be good, blah, 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 blah. Bottom line, they're calling us a bunch of weaklings, bunch of wusses for using that as an excuse as to why we can't improve. Well, obviously that's not the case on our junior and our youth levels. It's an even playing field for the most part. And we have athletes like CJ Cummings, who is now a four-time world champion. So maybe, just maybe, we're starting to realize there might be a little bit of truth to that, okay? Um, But to add to that even more, uh, recently the IOC put out a, I don't know what you would call it, uh, a news blast of sorts, uh, made an announcement that the Olympic participation for the sport of weightlifting is getting cut by 25%. The reason for doing that pretty much says you have a drug problem, you need to get it figured out. This is your warning. Which that pretty means for, for anybody that doesn't understand, that pretty much means that the sport of weightlifting is on the chopping block for the 2024 Olympics. They're saying we're going to allow you to compete in 2020, but given the test results from 2008, 2012, and 2016, you've got a problem. You've got to get it figured out. And for those who don't know, um, I believe it was around the 2012 Olympics, the IOC passed a rule that they can retroactively go back eight years and test samples that athletes submitted with new and improved testing methods. And they can retroactively take medals away from people. Um, It was widespread, though, across all the sports. Like, Russia was not allowed to bring, I believe, track and field and weightlifting athletes to this last Olympics because of these issues. Um, uh, Weightlifters like Lydia Valentin went from a fourth, fifth place perennial lifter to a multiple-time world medalist and Olympic champion now because of all these drug suspensions. So she literally elevated her status in the matter of months in the sport of weightlifting just because they were able to retroactively go back and drug test uh, other athletes. Our guest today, Adam Nelson, is one of those athletes that benefited from that. He was the silver medalist, the runner-up in 2004, 
the uh, gold medalist, Yuri Bilinog, they went back eight years later, tested his sample, found out that he was uh, you know, using PEDs, and in an Atlanta airport exchanged the gold medal for Adam Silver, and he's now eight years past the moment the 2004 Olympic champion. Um, this has a significant impact on those athletes that compete. It has a significant impact on those sports as it gives them a black eye because either people knew and they didn't do anything about it or the athletes knew ways to get, had ways to get around the system and it didn't do anything to help their cause because they were eventually caught in the end. But maybe, just maybe, all of those that say the reason we can't compete with the Europeans is because of the drugs, maybe those wusses that you referred to earlier, maybe there's a little bit of truth to what they're saying. Now, I'm not saying they're completely right, but I'm saying maybe there is just a little bit of truth, okay? Now, PEDs in and of itself is a very complex thing. I am not going to sit here on a pedestal and pretend to know everything there is about PEDs because there isn't, or I don't know. Like, there's way too much information out there. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. There's just a lot I don't know. I only talk about what I am able to, you know, give factual information on, okay? Now, one thing I want people to understand about PEDs is it, it, it's not just about getting stronger, what a lot of PEDs, especially the people that are in strength athletics and stuff like that, that use them for, it's to help them recover. Now, in a roundabout way, that's going to help you get stronger because the sooner you're able to recover from a brutal workout or a brutal sprint workout or whatever, the sooner you're able to recover, the sooner your muscles repair themselves, the sooner you're able to get back into the gym and you're going to be able to get another training session in. Now, that's going to allow you to work out harder and to work out longer for a bigger duration of time. And that's how the PEDs are helping those athletes. So yes, in a roundabout way, they are going to make you stronger, but it's not like you just inject whatever you're trying to take into your muscle and it's automatically stronger. That's not how they work. So let's just clarify that real quick. Um, the other thing people need to keep in mind is what, with, with all the drug testing, there are two main organizations, for us Americans anyways, that we have to deal with. There is the World Anti-Doping Agency, which oversees all of the sports governing bodies um, for the entire world. Uh, most of the Olympic sports have to report to WADA, and at their you know world championships and at the Olympics and all that, WADA is the one conducting the drug test. Now, here in the United States, we have the United States Anti-Doping Agency, and now every... Uh, uh, other country has their own internal doping agency, but the, the, the United States Anti-Doping Agency is one of those few organizations that has the mission to go out there and hunt down their own athletes and find them guilty. For the most part, I commend these efforts, but on the other part, I feel like our, our resources can be used better. Um, waking these athletes up at six o'clock in the morning to get a urine sample um, when they've been out drinking all night. All you're going to get is a bunch of recycled beer. Like I just, I don't think that is a good use of our resources. But that's neither here nor there. That's a different discussion. Um, what I'm trying to get at is we're one of the few countries that goes out and purposely tries to hunt down the drug users within our own sport, so that by the time we get to the international stage, it's not an issue when WADA comes in to test our athletes. So um, that's what a lot of people need to understand. But on the other side of that, USADA is very proactive about 
educating the athletes that come into the sport. If you go to any USA Weightlifting Nationals meet, there is always going to be a U.S. Anti-Doping Agency booth set up there. They're going to have information. They're going to have little wristbands. They're going to have like a little picture thing that says, I, su I support clean sport or something like that you can take a picture with. And they're always going to have representatives there to talk to you. They're also going to be there to drug test the gold medal winner and one random in each uh, session, but that's neither here nor there. The point is they go out of their ways to educate the athletes that compete in the U.S. anti-doping agency sports. Um, they send you little packets. I have four or five of them in my drawer. I could, right now I can pull out these little packets that they update every year of every known banned substance that is, you know, you're not supposed to take that's going to cause a, a, a failed drug test. And they say flat out, if you have any questions, message this person or this address and ask and we'll be able to tell you whether that substance is banned or not um they're constantly updating the list i think they update it like every six months or so and so there there is no reason for people to fail a drug test and say i didn't know that is absolutely false now i will say there are certain things on the list that i don't think should be certain cold medicines are going to get you a failed test certain levels of caffeine are going to give you a failed drug test but again that's neither here nor there the main point is here that they do a good job of educating our athletes now Recently in the United States, there have been a couple people that have got failed a drug test for one reason or another, and they've said somebody so and so gave me something. So and so, you know, I, I took somebody's pre-workout. I did this, I did that, I didn't know, I didn't read the labels. I'm sorry, you're full of crap. Um uh one of the athletes in particular uh, they, they tested positive for a pro-hormone and they blamed a pre-workout supplement for the pro-hormone that they got tested in. That's simply not how it works. They wouldn't. The pro-hormones are not in some of these pre-workouts, especially the pre-workout that he was claiming to use. Um, what you essentially did was you were taking this pro-hormone and you forgot to stop taking it two days before your competition. That is what happened. And then you ended up failing a drug test. Um, another lifter was saying that like so-and-so was giving me whatever. Um, and, and it caused a, drug, a, 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 a failed test. That Again, that, that's, that's your own fault for not doing your research. Anytime I have a representative that sells supplements come into the gym and say, hey, I think these would be great for your athletes, I ask for a list of ingredients. I want to see the packaging. I want to read the ingredients. And I will go to the USADA website on a later date or if I have the time right then and there, and I will cross-check things. And the minute something pops up that is on there that doesn't you know, jive with what we're trying to do, I say, no thanks. My athletes can't take this. I have no reason to have you know carry this product in my gym. Um, so my point is... Yes, the, the crying wolf every time we get beat by another country isn't always like and blaming drugs isn't the best option. But I think we're starting to see, especially after all the recent, you know, purging of metals and records and things along those lines that the IOC is trying to do and that WADA is trying to do. There may have been some truth to that all along that maybe drugs were a little bit to blame for you know, the lack of, of competition. Now, I'm not saying, again, it is the full reason. I'm just saying it is part of the problem. But as an athlete that competes in one of the most strictly drug-tested countries in the world, there is absolutely no reason for you to not know what drugs you're taking, what supplements you're taking, and, and, and how you know, uh, and how, how and when you're going to fail a drug test. Do your research, pay attention, 
read some labels, and everybody's going to be better off in the end. We don't have to listen to your sorry excuses as to why you failed a drug test, and, and you can explain to your hundreds of thousands of followers as to you know why you let them down. Let's get to the show. What's one thing you use every training session? One thing that if you changed for under $10 would have an immediate effect on your training. For myself and my lifters, that was upgrading to hand armor chalk. Hand armor, the official chalk of USA Weightlifting, is professional grade stuff. We keep it old school in the gym with their block chalk, but for me personally, I'm a huge fan of their liquid chalk. I use it whenever I'm throwing as a base layer before I tape up my hands, and it's a total game changer. It's completely mess free, long lasting, antimicrobial, and most importantly, gives me a great grip for my entire training session. I love this stuff and recommend you give it a try. The block chalk just starts at $3 and the liquid chalk under $7. Plus, if you use code AGENDA at checkout, you get an additional 10% off. HandArmorChalk.com. Go get yours now. So today's guest, ladies and gentlemen, I am extremely excited about. Um, my senior year of high school, I was uh, fully involved in track. I had a track scholarship and uh anything that was track and field related i was watching it reading it whatever uh, starting to download videos on youtube and my girlfriend at the time now wife surprised me that christmas with a autographed picture of at the time my, my favorite thrower and his name is adam nelson he is a very very accomplished thrower um from 1997 all the way to the last olympics he has been competing uh, he's NCAA football player at Dartmouth, thrower at Dartmouth. At, during that time, he was the 1997 national champ, champion. Um, during the World Athletics Final, he was a silver medalist 2004-2007. He was gold medalist in 2005. At the World Championships, he won the silver medal in 2000, 2003, and 2007, and won the gold medal in 2005. And then in his Olympic career, he's the silver medalist. Uh, in the 2000 Olympics, and he's the gold medalist at 2004 Olympics. Uh, he's currently the CFO, CEO of D10, and I am very happy and proud to be doing this interview with Adam Nelson. Adam, how are you doing, bud? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me, Tom. No problem. Thank you very much for doing this. Like I told you earlier, I am fanboying pretty hard about this one, but um let's just get started with the basics like tell us about how you got from point a to point b just give us a little bit of background on your athletic career how you you know got into throwing what your loves what your passions were um a little bit about your you know your, your throwing career because it was quite the interesting career anybody that knows anything about track and field knows that you were probably one of the more colorful characters um on the track and field circuit for quite some time yeah so i, got, I actually got started in track and field because i got cut from the baseball team and uh, saw it at the at, at the moment as an actual blessing in disguise. I thought this was going to be a great opportunity for me to focus on football and uh, continue, you know, ex excelling in that sport. Uh, when I got home and told my dad my plan, he said, you've got a choice. You can go get a job uh, or you can go out for another after-school activity. And uh, <laughs> the jobs available to a 12-year-old in 1988 were not exactly the greatest jobs uh, in the world. And in fact, uh, the only one that I knew that was readily hiring was working at Baskin Robbins. Um, and uh, the lady that managed the store and owned the store was known to uh, have some, be very handsy with her employees. Mm. So I, uh, and it was not a good thing. So uh, I very quickly decided to walk across the uh, parking lot, so to speak, and, and join the track team. And 
uh, you know, that was in 1988, and gosh, you know, 12 years later, I found myself at the Olympic uh, trials uh, and the, eventually the Olympic Games that year. So that's how I got into it. Um, from my standpoint, I fell in love with, with the shop but once it found me. Uh, I didn't go looking for it. I thought I'd be a football player or something like that. And when I went out to it, I just loved the personal challenge of it. And people talk about, you know, oh, you're so intense or you're so colorful when you compete and stuff. I just blame that on watching a lot of WWF when I was a young kid. Um, I just <laughs> knew at some level, <laughs> I say that somewhat jokingly, but I just knew at some level that if people didn't enjoy, if I, if I, if I wasn't enjoying myself out there, then nobody else was going to enjoy watching it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you come from a, from a throwing and a weightlifting background, Tom, like at the end of the day, like the people that get really geeked out on, on, on those types of, uh, events are like the people that get geeked out for lifting and throwing and things like that you know absolutely um but for me it was always like how can we bring this to more people and let them see that this is a pretty amazing skill uh and strength that these athletes down here have and um you know i just like and it also just i just enjoyed it and uh so if people were enjoying if people were watching and people were enjoying it um it took me up to the next level too so um that's that's kind of how all that stuff evolved Nice. And so in college, what was your best, uh, your best throw in the shot? So I won NCAAs my senior year with, at the time, what was a lifetime PR, I believe. I think it was about 64 feet, uh, 64.4, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I jokingly tell people, I said, look, timing is everything. Uh, had it been the year before or two years before, John Godina threw 72 feet and broke the collegiate record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next year is back up to 67 feet. So not to put a disclaimer on a, on, a, on being a national champion, but I timed it really well. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately that set me up to, to come back. I went back for another indoor season of eligibility um, and uh, ended up throwing, I think, 60, 65, almost 66 feet that year um, indoors. Ended up getting second uh, to Brad Snyder, who was a Canadian shot putter, uh, mm-hmm. who competed for South Carolina at the indoor meet. So, uh, but what it did was really quench that thirst to continue training uh, for another two and a half, three years for the Olympic trials in 2000. And then at what, at what point, like in your college career, did you realize that football wasn't going to be the thing anymore, and throwing was going <laughs> to be like your main focus? So that's all right. So that's a really interesting question because. Um, I think I kept playing football because of the team, my teammates. Okay. Um, after my freshman year in college, I had a lot of concussions my freshman year in college, and it was yeah. uh, it was not a good thing. Um, I don't recommend those. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so, uh, and after I think my freshman year in college, I probably would have quit had I not. Uh, if I if I were more of a man, I probably would have quit because it was not good for me to continue thro- to continue playing football. But I loved football, and, and I loved my teammates, and uh, ultimately felt uh, some sense of loyalty to them and knew that I was a contributing member on the team, even as a freshman. In fact, little tidbit, I was actually the first freshman to play varsity football in the Ivy Leagues. I do um, remember reading about that, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I felt obligated to keep playing there. and uh, But it really was my senior year. Uh, senior year in college, my college coach, Carl Wallen, had – probably called me into his office I don't know how many times uh, usually to tell me to stop being a donkey uh, but would also finish almost every conversation we had with like you really have a gift here you should keep doing this 
and my senior year in college, I was going through corporate recruiting and in the final stages of deciding which bank or consulting firm I was going to go work for and just realized, man, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to go to New York and just spend 100 hours behind a computer and building spreadsheets or, you know, 120 hours just working for somebody. Um, I feel like there's still more to this. And it just so happened that Coach Wallen sat me down for one of those conversations and said, you really have a gift. And I said, you know, this maybe this is the window of opportunity. And I, I realized how much throwing had meant to me and how cool it would be to make an Olympic team. And that was sort of the moment when it all clicked and said, okay, I'm moving to California. And, right. uh, you know, the rest is history from there. So was there outside of the conversations and all that and like your your intuition was there like a throw a meet something like that in your college career that was like yeah i can do this i can compete with these guys i can you know make an olympic team or was it just simply your coach just constantly telling you you know you can be really good you can be really good and that that eventually coming to fruition in terms of you competing on the international level so it's a, it, there's a little bit of all of the above to that. One is that I had a coach who had unwavering confidence in my ability. Uh, two is that even as a freshman, um, see, I only had – I didn't have an off-season. So playing football and doing track, which is indoor and outdoor season, I never really had an off-season to prepare. Mm-hmm. And what I found was – you know, the indoor season was always a throwaway because I was just getting healthy from all the bank, from all the little nicks and bumps and bruises from, from football. And exactly. that just by the time I was starting to throw well, um, the outdoor season was over. And I did okay. I made three NCAA's outdoors, I think. Um, maybe, maybe one or two indoors. But, um, but uh, anyway, the um, I just. I never because I never had an off season. I didn't have that one throw in a competition. It was like, oh, that's it. I could do this. But what what I would have is these practice throws. Even as a freshman, I was throwing a 14 pound shot put, 72, 73, 74 feet, and it just wouldn't translate to throwing the 16 pound ball. Mm-hmm. For some reason, my timing just wasn't there with it, and it just took me, you know, four or five years of training for that timing to come. Um, but I would say it was sometime in my, my, my junior and senior year when I really started having some big throws in practice um, that uh, I started saying, man, there's nothing special about these guys, like, and not to take away from them, but like guys like John Godina and mm-hmm. CJ Hunter and Kevin Toth and Andy Bloom and all those guys that were throwing 67 to 72 feet at the time. I, I just saw myself as one of their peers. And... Um, you know, I think that's probably the ignorance of of youth, you yeah. know, mis- <laughs> misplaced and un- maybe quite un- unwarranted confidence in yourself. But uh, I just believed I was better than they were. Or yeah. if they could do it, then I could do it. I just didn't see that. So uh, I just kept trying, just kept pushing and pushing. There you go. Now you've graduated you moved into the international or like the the, the the elite level so to speak um how was it the first few years um now mm-hmm. nowadays it seems like there's a lot more in terms of sponsorships and, and and agreements and stuff like that between higher level throwers and um and, and these different shoe companies and stuff like that was there anything like that when you first came out or was there only like one or two guys like i know godina at first had to deal with reebok and then he was with adidas like was there anything like that for you or, or other throwers in your position coming out of college? Um, not in my position. So I, I was one of those eat what you kill uh, kind of guys. Okay. Um, 
And really, pretty much for the most part, for most of my career was was in that situation with sponsorships. Mm-hmm. You know, as as it was once phrased to me, and this they, it was meant not as a disrespect, but as just sort of a understanding of how the what the landscape looks like. The less your event looks like the hundred, the mile, or the marathon, the less value you ha- you hold to the endemic sponsors in track and field. So. You know, for example, Nike is going to value a miler and a hundred meter runner and a mm-hmm. in a, in a, in a marathon runner more than they're going to value anywhere else, anybody else in the sport, unless you're truly exceptional and you find a way to like become the guy that transcends you know your sport and becomes the face of you know Olympic sports. So if you're a Michael Phelps kind of character, mm-hmm. um, who's who certainly has done that for swimming, um, you know you can you can basically be in any event. So um, so anyway, um, when I came out of college, I wasn't throwing far enough, um, even though I was probably top 10 or 12 in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't throwing far enough to warrant a sponsorship. There weren't a lot of uh, companies that were competing for athletes um, in, in the shot put. So uh, I was really only the number one or number two guy that had any sponsorship dollars. So I went three years without uh, any money from track at all, and just I just worked and trained. And I was talking about this with a girl I work with who's looking at uh, professional volleyball right now, and I said, look, it's not an easy lifestyle unless mm-hmm. you get guaranteed money. And even then, it's not always guaranteed. So Exactly. Um, you know, I hear kids, I can remember talking to some of the younger throwers, and they were saying, well, I can't keep throwing. I said, why not? Well, I finished college this year. Okay, so what's your point? Um, I don't have... I, I can't get a job. Why not? Because I won't have time to train. That's not an answer. That's an excuse. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of athletes out there. I think that sometimes use like, the, you know, if, if you want an excuse, there's th- tons of them to 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 seize onto, and they're all perfectly valid. Um, but for me, it was like making that 2000 Olympic team became the driving force in my life. So I went and found a job. Uh, working for Merrill Lynch at the time, uh, but on the West Coast, I lived in a, a closet that I paid uh, two hundred dollars a month um, to live in. It was awesome, you know, underneath the stairs, slanted roof, and everything. Um, <laughs> and uh, I lived in a house with ten other guys uh, that were trying to make that two thousand team. So I surrounded myself with people who had similar dreams and were willing to make the same sacrifice. Nice. And there was nobody saying you can't do that. Everybody was saying you can. So, you know, if you're looking for an excuse, well, life's going to dole out a whole lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all perfectly valid. But um, for me, there was just no excuse that was that was not surmountable. Like, you, you can conquer any of, these ex- any of these things. They're just, you know, they're problems, not conditions, you know. Absolutely. Um, so. So, 2000 Olymp- or, yeah, 2000 Olympic trials you that was like kind of like a breakout meet for you correct yes yeah you threw 70 72 uh, 7 i think right and so that was you were the number one ranked thrower in the world going into the olympics and then you ended up uh, a silver medalist explain the difference 
because I hear a lot about this, like, oh, the U.S. should sweep this competition or that competition. Explain to those who might not be aware, like, on paper, it looks so, you know, clear and, and, and dry. Like, these are the best. But at, like, World Championships, the Olympics, like, usually somebody comes out of nowhere and, 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 and wins, which was, you know, kind of what happened in 2000 to you. Just kind of explain the, the atmosphere, you know, the competition stuff like that like how is it different from like a normal like like for a u.s thrower so olympic trials is obviously a little more tense for us because we have so many good throwers so you have to be at your best like and explain how hard it is to maintain that going all the way through to the olympics right so the biggest difference between the united states and other countries for the most part um is that we all have to come into a physical peak uh, and competitive peak in order to make the team um every year there are five or six guys in the United States, at least since I was competing, um, who would have been, uh, who would have been viable candidates for medal if they were competing for another country. So when you, when you go to the Olympic trials, it's the most stressful event you'll ever go to. Um, and, but the thing is like you are planning for that event. You can't even focus on the Olympics because you have this is the most important stepping stone to get to the Olympics. If you don't survive that day, you don't even get to go on. So, you know, because nobody's so, you know, so far uh, or, or so much better than everybody else, it's a fairly equal playing ground even today, uh, although there's a one or two that are standing out from the pack right now. But even today, um, you know, there's nobody that I think can go into the Olympic trials and have so much confidence that they can train right through them and still feel like they can make the team. So you put all this stress and all this emphasis on making the team. And then when you make the team, you've got in, uh, in the Sydney case um, in 2000, the Olympics were fairly late in the year. So seven weeks after July, we'll call it July 8th or 9th, uh, eight weeks or 10 weeks after that, I think, uh, were the actual Olympics. Um, so it was, it was it was really late in the season, um, and you've got to hold a physical peak and a mental peak pretty much for that long for that for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, my the reason why I didn't perform as well had little to do with that, and as much as like I just I rolled an ankle two weeks before the trials, and I'm not a big power or two weeks before the Olympics, and I'm I'm not a I, it just changed my timing out of the back of the circle. Um, so it kind of kind of sucked, yeah. but the other thing is like the Olympic Games themselves. If you're looking at the other countries, they're able to to prepare specifically for those games without any concern for uh, making a living. Um, so all the competitions are in Europe. Most of our competitors are European um, during the summer, so they can just do short day trips to and from competitions if they want to go to them. Uh, and then show up at the Olympics without much travel or without much disruption to their training. After the 2000 Olympic trials, um, you know, I went to Europe to go make money uh, and was living in a little hostel in, um, in uh, Sweden and traveling to and from competitions. It was not the best scenario for training, but it was pretty, pretty solid. And then obviously when I rolled my ankle, I didn't have access to, to quality medical uh, at the time, uh, so 
you know, there's a lot of reasons why uh, I think I underperformed at the 2000 Olympics, but ultimately, uh, I think that year more than in the other Olympic Games, I was really more focused on making the team and didn't really know what to do from a mental or physical preparation standpoint to be truly ready for the Olympics uh, later on. And in other countries, they don't have that issue uh, at all. Okay. So, so you take silver there. And then you compete at the World Championships a couple more times uh, between then and 2004. Um, how was 2004 different for you than than 2000? Um, like yeah. in just in terms of your general prep, your mental approach, uh, maybe physical throwing, whatever. Like, what was the difference between the two Olympics for you? So in 2003, I actually I go back to the end of 2003. I was really frustrated. Um, so when I started converting myself into a pro rather than Olympian if you want to call it that. Um, mm-hmm. this, the, the notion of Olympic athlete to me still has this amateur aspect of it, uh, mm-hmm. to it. But real, real, realistically, I was doing this full time. It was my profession. And I started looking around at the way other people were being compensated and would get really frustrated with the fact that a guy who was number four in the mile was making uh, from a sponsor, you know, four, five, six times what I was making. Um, from a sponsor and wasn't performing well and they were getting more mileage I thought out of me than, than those so I really started looking at the business side of it and getting frustrated with it and that, that really um, I didn't realize how much that was changing my perspective uh, and my passions for, for competition but I also at the same time hooked up with Charles Poliquin in 2003 and for the first time started doing a strength program that was really well organized um, we worked on everything too. Like we worked on structural balance. We worked on obviously strength uh, and power, but uh, my diet a whole lot too. So going into 2004, I was probably in the best shape I've ever been, and I felt really good about everything. I ended up getting married in 2004, and that was awesome. Um, but all this business, all the the business side of the sport was really weighing very heavily on me, and and I just was getting losing the passion to actually compete. I was it was really kind of a bizarre contradiction because here I was in fantastic shape, um, but I was just not fulfilled by this board anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to I remember we did a meet uh, in Atlanta called the Titan Games, which doesn't like doesn't exist anymore. But it was a little. Yeah, yeah. Uh, throws it was a they had basically the fighting sports the lifts and shot put um, all in one competition it was a really cool content uh, concept that they just failed to execute well but it was a really I thought it, I think it'd do well today much better today than it did 12 years ago 13 years ago but went there and literally I fouled out of the competition which is awesome nothing unusual for me six fouls in a row but every foul was like at 2280 and farther um, wow. So like we're talking 74 feet, um, and I had my farthest throw of the day that they we went out and looked at later on was 22.95, and so like you're talking 75 foot throws. Yeah. Um, and I was like, holy cow, I'm in phenomenal shape, <clears throat> and um, and so that kind of got me a little like I was. I was like, you know what, I'm in great shape, let's just go do this. And so I, I got focused, went to the Olympic trials, had a great Olympic trials, made the team, um, felt really good about everything, uh, get to Athens, and I don't really, I'm not going to make any excuses about my performances in Athens. There were some things that were um, not ideal, um, 
about my just me personally at the time mm-hmm. um but the the venue was was amazing i had my first throw i felt pretty good on my first throw and that was the best throw i had of the day but then everything just fell apart after that first throw for some reason i Did slipped you... and i fell the ball slipped out of my I, you know all this stuff yeah pretty much every mistake you can make and um you know I don't know. I don't want to steal a future punchline in this podcast, but like, no, no. you know, walking out of that those games I, at the time, um, I realized that I probably hadn't. I, while I, I was in better shape, I hadn't prepared as well as I should have mm-hmm. um, on all fronts. So anyway, no. So that was the one where you guys you guys threw at the ancient Olympic state, like one of the original like Olympic venues, so to speak, in Athens, right? You, Yes, I remember the shop was held at a different location than the rest of the the track and field events. You guys were actually taken to like the old stadium to throw in. Dude, that was so cool. So we were in the ancient Olympic Stadium, the original uh, ancient Olympic Stadium yeah. in Olympia, Greece. There were about twenty five thousand, twenty thousand people there. Um, That's insane. And I mean, literally, we walked through the ruins of of of, uh, of the stadium to get into yeah. it. It's basically a big grass, you know bowl with a yeah. dust floor and um it was hot I and mean, it was so hot that day i can remember like <laughs> the dust would kick up and it's like 90 something degrees there's no shade anywhere and uh <laughs> you know we may have been lacking some water or some things like that <laughs> some creature comforts but it was it was an amazing venue it was like yeah. for me like those are the types of venues that i love because yeah i like you, you i sort of reference my pre pre free throw rituals but like those things do those things just take me to a new le- whole new level in a small oh, venue like that so i was like for for a game standpoint I, was, I pretty much walked into that venue and said this is my venue like there's nobody else that competes as well as i do in a venue like this so that, that's phenomenal now the next year you finally win a gold you have like a string of silvers you finally win a gold medal mm-hmm. you were just talking about like not preparing as well as you could have was that a result of you preparing better so to speak or was that more just you know right place right time like what what was the difference between 2005 winning the world championships and then 2004 with the silver at the olympics so and as you referenced like at the very beginning i ended up with the gold in 2004 but but at the at the moment of the competition so the way that competition unfolded was i threw my best throw on the first throw and mm-hmm. then I had five consecutive fouls. Going into the last throw, the sixth throw of the competition, uh, or approximately the 59th throw, after the 59th throw of the competition, um, the guy that had been in second trailing me the whole time tied me on the 59th throw of the competition. Mm-hmm. Tie-breaking rule goes back to your second-best throw. So I knew going into the final throw of this competition that I had to throw farther to win. I felt awesome. I'd, I felt like it was all going to come together. I got in the ring, and I just remember, like, I can remember everything about this moment, even today. I feel the goosebumps mm-hmm. on the back of my neck. I can feel the, That's amazing. the sweat and the, the mud that gets in. I mean, just, I can feel everything about it. And I can hear, I can remember the screams. Like, there was a, you know, really strong anti-American sentiment, so people were booing as I stepped into the ring. And I can remember it all went quiet the second the shot put touched my neck. When I finally exploded back to life and the shot put left my hand, I remember seeing the shot put fly farther than it had the whole day. I was like, I, I, I thought I'd won. I raised my hands in victory and I looked over and saw the red flag indicating that I fouled. And uh, then I saw the guy from the Ukraine start start his victory lap. 
and uh, it was a pretty crushing moment. I can um, imagine. And I was extraordinarily frustrated. Well, the fallout of that competition, I went back and the business side kind of came back up. And I went back to my sponsor at the time and put together a proposal to them about what I'd liked, what I thought I was worth. Um, and their expectations and my expectations were completely different. Yeah. Uh, and I'll just be, you know, I was not happy. Yeah. Um, and so at that moment, I made the decision that I, my agent and I talked, and he said, look, this other company is, is very interested, but they need you to wait until February. And they sent me some gear, like some, some clothing stuff and things like that as a sign of good faith. And I said, okay, this is cool. But I, I was angry. I was really, really angry. Mm-hmm. I was mad at everybody. I was mad at the world. I was mad at my. I was mad at anything that you. I mean, I was just not a good person. And, um, and but like I had a new passion for training. It was more. It was not about. Uh, are you okay with cussing? Yeah. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Perfect. Um, but I pretty much woke up every day and said, "Fuck this person. Fuck this company. Fuck this. Fuck them. Fuck all." Um, and I had this anger that was just just it never it didn't subside and Mm -hmm. uh eventually and this is you know where it gets a little cheesy but eventually that angry like i'm not an angry person by nature like that's not Mm -hmm. who i am and that eventually uh transferred into a into a real passion for training again Mm -hmm. and i stopped giving a shit about what other people were making i stopped caring about how far people were throwing i stopped caring about what everybody else was doing and i just started focusing on what i could do and what i could control and I have never been, as a result of that, I was never more fulfilled in my career than from 2005 until the day I retired from throwing. Um, and my results like just continued to climb. Like, yeah. <clears throat> I won the world championships the next year and, um, in 2005, and then in 2007 I was in grad school, full-time grad school, and went to the world championships there and finished second. But I, actually, people don't know this, but like, I was in one of the hardest, uh, most rigorous, like rigorous programs, business school programs in the country. Uh, had been plagued by injuries and surgeries uh, mm-hmm. that year, and literally had about six weeks of training under my belt um, when I went into the World Championships. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, can't shake a stick at that. So I thought that was my best competitive performance of my career, and uh, to this day, like you know, Reese Reese Hoffa won the World Championships in that day on that day, and. Um, I will gladly say that that was not a competition I lost. He flat out beat me. Yeah. Uh, but I, I walked <laughs> out of that competition with my head held high. In 2008, I was in phenomenal shape. Mm-hmm. I threw. I was. I was still in grad school, and I went in indoors and set a new uh, indoor personal best at 22:43. Yeah, that and was at the Arkansas meet, right? At the Arkansas meet, yeah. And uh, then literally was throwing. I mean, I was ready to break the indoor world record. Yeah. Um, right and uh pulled my groin so what can you do um Mm -hmm. uh, it started coming back around in 2008 and and went to the trials squeaked through the trials that year um still kind of played with injuries a little bit but um got to the olympics and was finally coming back into the same form that i was in indoors and uh my last practice before we competed uh, in Beijing, it was a, my last hard practice. Was supposed to be my last hard practice. Uh, it was a Monday before the Friday competition, and I go out and I pull these intercostal muscles in my in my back. And uh, we had a crew from NPR follow me that day, 
and I was trying to cover it up a little bit and not not let it show that it was yeah. a little more severe. And I went to the team medical and this chiropractor for the for the U.S. team. I, th- I said, "Look, can you just check? I think I've got a rib out of place." And rather than just checking, he decided to before I could stop him, he did a compression adjustment. And uh, when he jumped on me to do the do the compression um, adjustment, it uh, it just I mean, it was like someone took a stake and shoved it in my back. Jeez. And um, so my 2008 Olympic Games, you know, injuries happen, but uh, there's nothing that I would have changed in the yeah. lead up. And when you can look back over a four-year training period and say there's nothing I would have changed or done differently uh, to get to this moment and to earn this, you know, <clears throat> this result, which was I made it to the made it through qualifying rounds, but didn't make it any farther. Um, you know, you've done something right. So. Absolutely. So now we get to, I got, I don't know if this is a touchy subject for you anymore. I, I got to, somebody live streamed your talk about 2004 and post at Sorenex Summer Strong this year. I was really bummed I didn't get a chance to make it out there for that. But this is probably one of the, you don't have to recant the whole thing, um, but it's probably one of the best speeches I've ever heard. Um, just your whole enthusiasm, your, your passion as you're describing it. Um, you get a call. They IOC passed, or I don't know if it was IOC or whoever passed the rule that they could go back and hold samples and test them up to eight years past an event. Leading up to 2012, they started going back and testing 2004 and 2008 Olympics. You find out that the guy that took gold in the shop put failed his drug test. It was a second fail. He ended up being, you know, getting a lifetime ban. You're now the gold medalist. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity you missed out on, but just explain kind of how that impacted you a little bit, you know, going from being all this time known as the silver medalist to being announced at the 2012 Olympic trials in front of your family and friends as the gold medalist, you know, for the 2004 games. Yeah. Um, gosh, it, it's really bittersweet. Um, I tell people all the time, like when I first got the medal, um, it wasn't a joyous experience. I mean, I got the medal at a fucking um, airport at the, bur- at the in front of the Burger King in the Atlanta airport. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's I, w- I had this beautiful, you know, gold medal that most people just cherish, and I would just look at it and said, "This doesn't have a lot of value to me at all." Like it just it symbolizes so much pain and hurt and loss. Yeah. And um, gold medals shouldn't feel that way. Um, you know, you may have a victory that came at a huge cost, uh, but uh, it a gold medal at the Olympic Games should never feel that way. And uh, the immediate aftermath, like I, I looked at everything that I lost out on, or the potential things that I lost out on, and and. Um, it was uh, at some level I was able to sort of kind of cope with it a little bit and come up with a way to sort of rationally spin this and say, you know, I spent most of my career being a um, advocate for clean sport, vocal, very vocal advocate of clean sport, even coming under fire um, from some of my competitors about how loud spoken I was about it. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is just, you know, some sort of this is just karma this is like hey look thank you for for this is 
one of the lessons you you need to learn for doing it the right way. It may not happen in the moment, but at some point in the down the road, some point in the future, you'll be rewarded for the way you do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to be honest; it's taken years to restore value to that that metal. Um, oh, absolutely. And uh, my whole my whole hope is, and I've had an opportunity to do a couple things. I, I when testified before Congress this year about the importance of clean sport mm-hmm. and um, I wouldn't have had that opportunity had I not earned a medal in the way, manner that I earned it mm-hmm. um, but um, my whole goal or my uh, my objective here with, with that medal is to, to, to hopefully it'll symbolize the fact that look you can compete in the power and strength for sport and not be dirty mm-hmm. and not only can you compete in it you can be at the top of your game yeah. If I go back and I look back at the athletes that beat me, uh, who have since tested positive, I should have been the 2003 world champion, mm-hmm. the 2004 Olympic Games champion, the 2005 world champion. As it was, as it at the at the moment, you know, I was second, second, and first. Um, history's been rewritten a little bit, and I've been second, first, first. But my point in sharing that is not to, you know, rewrite history, but to say that. Look, there are always going to be people that say that you can't do something. Mm-hmm. There are always going to be people that say you're too small, you're too slow, you're too weak. And if you accept that as the truth, you are. You know, you can live up to their expectations for you. I'm too small to be a shot putter. I'm six feet tall, 265 pounds. That's the biggest I've ever, well, 272 is the heaviest I've ever been. Um, you know, People told me that my technique was horrible. People said that I'll never be successful because of those reasons. I'm too small and I'm too, and, and this and that. But you can't discount passion. You can't discount belief. Mm-hmm. You can't discount your own confidence and your own abilities. And if you've got the ability to work, put the, if you've got the ability to work and you have just the minimum threshold of ability to compete at that level, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about sports or anything else, if you've got the minimum threshold of ability, and you've got the desire, I can promise you you're going to accomplish a lot more than the naysayers will ever, ever give you credit for. Yeah, I mean, I personally can relate. Like, I mean, you being a smaller in stature, and it's really weird for me to say six foot 270 is small because I guarantee you standing next to, like, put you in a lineup of average people, like, you're going to be one of the bigger guys or whatever. But being a small, I'm six foot as well, um, about 275, 280, and that that was like, well, he can do it, others can do it kind of a deal. And for a while there, there were a couple of shot putters that were making it through that were a little bit on the smaller side and all that stuff. And then it came to other sports, um, you know, weightlifting. Again, for me, for instance, I was very short for a super heavyweight weightlifter. Most of the guys are 6'4", six, 6'5". Um, 300 plus pounds. I eventually got up to 300 pounds, but like being of that smaller stature, like just your constant passion and your constant belief and your constant, like, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways, kind of an attitude. Like I, I know I'm not the only one that that positively affected as a young athlete. Like I said, high school, I was constantly watching your clips, constantly, you know, reading up any articles and stuff like that, that you were in on. So I know I'm not the only one that your attitude and your, 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 your passion infected. So I, for me and anybody else that you have positively affected, like, thank you for that mentality. Thank you for doing it the right way because you were able to eventually accomplish, you know, that goal of a gold medal. Like it made it possible for others to think that it, the same thing could happen for them. 
Thank you, man. I, I mean, that means a lot. I, I um, remember having a conversation um, with a guy named Willie Banks, um, who you may or may not know. But Willie was a triple jumper. Uh, I believe he was a world record holder for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. First guy, I think, to jump over 18 meters in the triple jump. So 59, some change there. Um, and one thing Willie told me, I had the pleasure of working with Willie at a fairly young age, but he just reminded me, said, never never forget that people are watching. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect all the time, but you do have to be genuine. Mm-hmm. And um, I can remember at times in my own life having access or the available the, the opportunity to meet one of my, one or two of my, my heroes in the sports world, like Emmett Smith, uh, another guy named Ron Gann. I'm from Atlanta, so he played for you know the Braves Mm -hmm. Um, and how genuine and courteous and nice they were in person to their fans and then transposing that or just juxtaposing that with their experience of meeting um, well quite honestly I'll tell you Michael Johnson for the first time yeah I was a starstruck fan at the the 1996 Olympics uh, trials and he just dismissed me like didn't and I just said, hey, I know you're busy, but I just wanted to say, you know, I'm a huge fan. And it was like I was dirt. And wow. um, I've never forgotten how that made my made me feel. And uh, I, I've always wanted to help. I've always wanted to be available to, like, the people that love throwing, uh, to fans of track and field and anybody that I – so when I hear people like you say, hey, it was inspirational to me, like, that, that that's really – you know, at the end of the day, you've got medals and you've got all these great memories, but the only legacy you have are the things that people remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you remember me like that, then that's pretty awesome, Tom. So thank you. Yep. I, I, like I said, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. But let's now, let's fast forward a little bit to modern day. You are, you were just talking about a little bit before we started recording. You seem pretty busy now. Um, you're working with D10 as well as you're <coughs> a huge advocate for the athlete at the last, I remember at the last Olympics um, with the sponsorship stuff, um, you were constantly tweeting out Facebook. Um, I, I saw a lot on social media. You and other athletes were very vocal, very active about um, athletes not getting their fair share of the marketing dollars and whatever uh, leading up to the Olympics. And so you're very uh, advocate. Or you're very uh, athlete uh, friendly in terms of being an advocate for them and what they deserve and what they should be getting as well as the clean sport and all that stuff. So talk a little bit about that and then talk about what you're currently doing with D10. Like what are you? What do you got going on now? Dude, I have I've got a lot going on. It's it's so much fun right now, and I found that you know when you're busy, you're busiest, you're most productive as well. So um, <clears throat> starting at the top there, like first from an athlete's rights standpoint, I love the Olympic Games. I love the Olympic movement. But the only thing that's not professional about the Olympic Games are the athletes. Um, the athletes, athletes, at the, the athletes do not have any say in this contract that they have with the Olympic movement. That um, you know, ultimately, is a multi-billion-dollar behemoth, uh, and it's not necessarily the end of the world there. But the problem is that the uh, people in power know that these athletes will usually be gone within the next four-year cycle so if they they, there's never been any real concerted effort to just afford athletes basic basic rights um, that you'd see in other professional sports 
um, there's a lot of like sort of giveaways and gimmies, but there's no real sustenance, sustenance or, or substance behind them. So from an athlete's rights standpoint, like I feel like, um, you know, there's a huge evolution that needs to take place and, and I've been privileged and honored to be a part of it at, sm at a small level and hopefully I can continue to help there. Um, from a from an anti-doping standpoint, I mean, this was this goes back to when I was 16 years old. My dad and I first had this conversation about doping in sport. We didn't know it; we just knew it as steroids at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he knew that I loved to lift out, loved loved to lift and work out. And he said we literally had this conversation after the first time I was ever offered steroids at a gym out in Georgia. Um, and uh, I've only been offered and seen seen drugs three times in my in my whole career, which I think is pretty good when you consider what I did for for 20 years and um, and uh, he said he said son he said we can have this conversation the conclusion of the conversation was and if you ever do decide to do drugs steroids performance enhancing drugs just know that you'll be disowned and <laughs> I have a lot of respect for my dad and my family and yeah um, I'm not saying that I'm perfect and that I'd want all my dirty laundry to be aired but I feel pretty good about the newspaper test like I could pretty much let a reporter and follow me in my daily life for seven days a week 24 hours a day for 365 days a year and it would be inconvenient but my life wouldn't change that much and I wouldn't be too embarrassed by what they found mm -hmm. and um, and I owe that to my dad having that conversation so if you're a parent of a child and uh, you don't want them to uh, do something you need to make sure that that subject's not taboo uh, and make it comfortable for them. Make it make it make it make it so that they have they have some comfort in coming to talk to you about these really difficult decisions, or these apparently difficult decisions in life. Absolutely. Um, so my dad was did that for me. As to what I'm doing right now, I started working with this company uh, called the D10. Uh, used to be known as the Wall Street Decathlon, and then transitioned into the Decathlon. Now it's not. Now it's known as the D10. Um, back in May, and the founder of it was a former track athlete from Auburn. Uh, he was a 800 miler guy uh, at Auburn and he's done some really cool stuff over his career since college. Uh, and I think this is going to be probably the, the, the pinnacle or the crowning achievement for him. Uh, it started off as just a bunch of guys in New York City getting together at the local track and basically doing a modified decathlon, which in their definition was more or less like an NFL combine with four extra events. So there, at the time, there was a, a 400 meter run, an 800 meter run. This is not in order, by the way. Mm -hmm. 400 meter run, 800 meter run, 500 meter row, bench press, uh, max reps uh, competition, max pull-ups, max dips, vertical jump, uh, shuttle run, 40-yard dash, and what am I forgetting? Uh, the football toss for distance. And that first event ended up raising... Uh, quite a bit of money uh, for cancer research actually just it was a little bit more uh, generic at the time but uh, for cancer research and it was just a bunch of guys that just got together to do it and uh, Bloomberg the news agency picked it up uh, that day and it was the number one televised or number one read published distributed uh, article of the day and that's evolved into what it is today this our first event was uh, the first of June in uh, New York and we ended up raising $1.3 million for Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, one thing that I found you know, over the course of my career is that your motivations for competing change, your motivations for training will change. And the older you get, the, the more you have to dig for new motivations usually. Um, mm -hmm. And 
one of the things I love about this sport is it's basically it basically uh, attaches a cause to your efforts. So you as an Olympic lifter, you as a CrossFitter, you as whatever, um, the way our model works is like, look, make this training worth something. Challenge your friends to raise money for this charity. Challenge your friends to, to, to raise, to help you achieve your goals while helping this other organization. So we've, we've done some really awesome stuff. I should say Dave, my, my boss and, and the founder of the company, has done some really awesome stuff. Uh, built this amazing platform. We're in five cities right now. Houston, Boston, Chicago, um, San Francisco, and um, New York. Uh, but uh, you can you can find out more about it at thed10.com. It's pretty mm -hmm. cool stuff. Yeah. Um, we basically are looking what we're hoping to do is just remind people that you can still be a competitive athlete um, after college. So, you know, CrossFit kind of fills that spot, but one of the dangers with CrossFit now is that the actual pinnacle of CrossFit with the CrossFit Games, and even to a certain extent the Open, is unattainable for a lot of people. Um, yeah, it's getting, it's getting very competitive the further along it goes. So, yeah, I mean, it's like certainly the, that the, at the games themselves, you're really talking about people who are more or less professional athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, even in the open, uh, I think some of the competitions are quite challenging. Um, so we've simplified some things and just basically in this country uh, use something that really defines uh, world-class athletes uh, with the NFL Combine and built on that. And... Uh, I think it's a pretty great alternative for people that aren't distance runners, you know, like what do you do when you retire, when, what do you do when you finish college if you're a competitive athlete who wasn't mm -hmm. a distance runner? Like, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do if you didn't have CrossFit or, or Highland Games right now? Oh, jeez, yeah. I'd or powerlifting. I mean, I'd be going insane right now. That's what I'd be doing. So we think we found a really good competitive outlet, outlet and we want to make sure that we reward people for not only their, their competitive efforts, but also their, their social and cause-based efforts. And, Absolutely. You know, it's pretty cool. Like everybody that competes in our event agrees to raise uh, two or $3,000 for the charity that we've designated. Mm -hmm. uh, and we get guys that raise $40,000. It's unbelievable. Um, and and when, you see, when you see that, like it just adds so much meaning to, to your day-to-day. And uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely include uh, a link to this in the show notes um, for those who are listening that want to check out. You know, the D10. Um, it, it, you were explaining. I'm actually really upset about this right now. But the one that's going to be in Chicago, I'm going to be out of town that weekend. Um, it's also the same weekend as the CrossFit game, so that's going to be a that'll be interesting to see um, all the the, the 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 athleticism being displayed in the area that weekend because. Um, the CrossFit Games are now moved up to Madison, Wisconsin, um, which isn't what, yeah, they're in Madison this year, which isn't too far from here, obviously, but, uh, this is just right in our own backyard here in Chicago. So, um, I'm definitely going to try to convince everybody in the area that's going to be here to, to head out there and either, you know, attend in some form or fashion, or if you want to compete and fundraise, like we'll post the link for it in our uh, show notes with this uh, podcast. So you guys can all go check that out. Awesome. Um, How's your family doing? I know you have two. Uh, you have two, two girls, three girls. I had two girls, six two, and eight. Two, they're six and eight now. And, I remember uh, you posting something a while back, and they were just you know little things there. Oh no, we were at um, 
when we visited you, Matt mm-hmm. Vincent and I, um, in Athens, I believe the oldest was around, but she was just tiny running around or something like that. Like you were there, you weren't there long. You were just kind of coming in and checking something. She was with you and yep. she's six years old now. And so you are no longer in Athens. Um, when I first met you physically, you were the director of Spark. You're no longer there now. You're now in Houston with um, D10, correct? Yes, yes. Very cool, very cool. Years ago, when I had first started the Strength Agenda as an online resource for strength athletes, a company called Blonix reached out to me asking if I would test their HMB plus creatine and write an honest review. I checked the ingredients to make sure they were USADA compliant and said yes, used it for a month as a test. I was blown away with the results. I had used creatine before in high school and college, but I had never used HMB, let alone in conjunction with creatine. The difference it made in my training was noticeable as I was less sore after each training session. This is an incredible feat for me considering I had nine heavy training sessions a week with MDUSA. Over the course of four years, as I've switched from high-level weightlifting to being a professional grid league player, trying Moss Wrestling, and now working towards a pro status in the Highland Games, Blonix has been the one consistent supplement I take. The difference is noticeable, and I bet you'll be blown away just like I was. Use Strength Agenda Radio at checkout and score 10% off your purchase. I suggest the HMB and creatine to start, but I also highly recommend the beta alanine. Blonix, that's B-L-O nyx.com all right well the last section of this everybody's getting put through the ringer here is we have our lightning round you good for a few questions i'll give you about three of them all right all right so since you mentioned this already um i'm just going to go ahead and start with if you were given a chance to be a wwe wrestler what would your name be and what would your walkout song be (laughs) well I'd I'd have to go with Adam just because I just I think you you just can't you don't need the gimmicks and my walkout song ooh now it would have to be something probably something by Eminem um, yeah maybe that's cliche I don't know no not now would you be A T O M or A D A M no I'd be Adam because I want to own my name that's the business nice. side of it John yeah, Cena did it right man. He did. He did. That's that's pretty. Yeah. I just with your. If anybody ever doesn't know, you need to check out just any of Adams. I, I believe there's a compilation on YouTube of just your like pre-throw routines. Um, <laughs> some of the most entertaining and just like if that doesn't get you jacked up to go train or do whatever you're about to do, I don't know what will. But I definitely think your entrance, your ring entrance, in and of itself, would be. You could be the worst wrestler in the world, but your ring entrance would more than make up for it. So <laughs> I have no doubt you'd be able to pull that off. I have to get All in right. better shape. They got long walks down to those uh, rings from I, the from the right. locker rooms. I, I haven't been to a recent live event, but I, my my friends will post pictures and stuff, and I cannot believe how grandiose like the, the 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 jumbotrons and the ramps and all that stuff are like yeah like WrestleMania for instance. They were saying it was almost I think it was like a two hundred meter like runway from the start of the, the 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 jumbotrons all the way down to the ring like it was a ridiculous amount of uh space you had to cover 200 might be an exaggeration but it was a ridiculously long ramp from the start to finish so and some of these like triple h for instance had a motorcycle he ran like down it and it seemed like he was on that thing forever even on a motorcycle <laughs> so i couldn't imagine running down it all right next question what was your favorite 90s jam favorite 90s jam yeah like song yeah Oh man. Okay. 
judgment. No judgment. No jumb. No 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 judgment. Uh, well, so I was. Oh my gosh, favorite '90s. Uh, this is kind of a cop out, but any like, I'll do like. Okay, we'll go. We'll go. Uh, House of Pain. Jump around. Nice. And then just for like making me feel good, Chumba Wumba, man. There you go. <laughs> Very nice. Um, not sure if you're a comic book guy or not, but um, with all the movies and all that, you should have enough knowledge on this. Who would win in a fight between Batman or Spider-Man? Spider-Man. Really? Utility belt can only last so long, man. That is true. That is true. Superpowers, I feel like, are going to win out no matter what. I don't understand, though. It drives me nuts that Batman is still so able to stay in fights with people with ridiculous superpowers, but whatever. I'm not a big Batman fan. I'm a Marvel guy, not a DC guy, so uh, let's give you one more here, and then we'll let you uh, head out here. If you were to... I, I wouldn't recommend this ever. Um, I had a coach in high school that never... He said, I'm never going to punch you, but what I'll do is I'll hold out my fist and let you run into it. Um, if you were to let somebody punch you directly in the face, who would it be? And you can't use your wife. That's a cop-out. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a good question. And obviously, you wouldn't want any of your throwing friends because of the velocity they would generate. Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, I think, uh, gosh, you know what? I think I'd let Tom Cruise punch me in the face. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I like that. I think he's got small hands. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that. I bet you you're right. He probably does. All right. Well, that uh, plug time outside of D10. You got anything else you want to plug? No, man. I just, I mean, look, right now we've got some awesome stuff going on in the shop at World. We've got two guys that I think are th maybe even three, but two guys right now who can, I think, can break the world record with. Um, Do you think they're going to do it? Uh, I mean, Ryan Krauser is making twenty-two fifty-ish look like a joke now, and, yeah. and he's starting to hit that on on a on a fairly regular basis. So I, I just that's that's a good sign, mm -hmm. uh, and he's got some competition there, uh, just in the U.S. and and in New Zealand. So yeah, I'm, uh, when you've got I'm, three or four guys that are throwing twenty-two meters, that just means that someone's going to push farther. So I'm pretty fired up about that. So keep an eye out for the shot putters. Yeah, I really like watching Joe and Ryan at the same competition like I think it's a healthy rivalry like you said to one of them's going to eventually pop one off because they keep constantly getting pushed mm -hmm. and then you like you said you throw in a couple of you know inter other international competitors and it seems like a recipe for a good time so I'm really hoping soon we get to see like on a big stage like one of them pop off that throw I, think I personally I, I personally would like the name on that world record to change but that's yeah. A discussion for a late, another time. I, I, I would totally agree with you, and I think that's uh, a totally fair comment. So, All right. Well, Adam, thank you very much. This was phenomenal. I enjoyed it. I, I, I hope all the listeners uh, enjoy that. Um, good luck with D10 and all your future endeavors and all that. Um, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being an ambassador for clean sport, athlete rights, and just telling the naysayers to go bug off. Um I, like I said, I, I've said this numerous times. Like I know I'm not the only one that you influenced as a young athlete. Um, I probably will not be the last. So just thank you again. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, man. You guys take care. 
Thanks for listening to Strength Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit strengthagendaradio.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover exclusive offers and resources for our listeners. Until next time, train hard, lift heavy.